Bad Triathlon Show, episode 52. Hello, welcome back everybody to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and the topic of today's episode is recovery. You all know how important recovery is for triathlon performance, but uh, do you know just how important it is? We'll answer that question and many more, including the different recovery methods available and their relevance for both age groupers and elite triathletes, sleep and uh, its specific impact on performance, and how you can improve your sleep including tips on using screens, electronic devices, and how they might affect your sleep. My guest today is uh, Shona Halsen, PhD and Senior Recovery Physiologist at the Australian Institute of Sports, or the AIS, and she knows all the ins and outs of recovery for athletes, both from a scientific and theoretical perspective and from an applied practitioner's perspective. So, without any further ado, enjoy the show. All right, it's my great pleasure to welcome Shona Halsen to this episode of That Triathlon Show. Welcome, Shona. Thank you. Thanks very much. And you're a senior recovery physiologist at the Australian Institute of Sports. And anybody who follows uh, sports science and exercise science is probably going to be familiar with the AIS, as it's called, because you guys do a ton of great research there and, and a lot of interesting stuff is coming out of the AIS continuously. Uh, can you give us a brief bio of what exactly it is that you do in your role? Yeah, sure. So my role is a combination of um, direct athlete servicing, so working with athletes, uh, as well as research um, and student PhD student supervision um, in particular. So in terms of um, the actual service provision, we do a, a range of different things regarding recovery in terms of um, programming recovery into um, training programs, um, do sleep monitoring, sleep education, um, as well as providing some um, some facilities and facility access as well. My PhD was in overtraining um, in cyclists, so that was a number of years ago now, and uh, so I was really interested in fatigue. Um, and when the uh, when the job at the AS came up, it was a fatigue and recovery scientist. So I went in with the sort of recovery background, not so much of sorry the fatigue background, not so much of the recovery background. But um, as we um, continued to do more and more research around fatigue and finding that it was a little bit more difficult to understand, the one thing that we could actually implement and see big changes with was actually introducing recovery um, into the training program. So move slightly away from fatigue um, and more in uh, a little bit to, to recovery. And um, it was, I've been at AIS now for 15 years. Um, and so it was really back then when um, recovery was starting to get quite popular. And um, in Australia, we have real evidence-based focus. So that's where um, the need to do research and to try and work out whether these strategies that athletes were using were actually working or not. All right. And when you say that you work a lot with, with athletes in an applied sense, uh, do you have a lot of endurance athletes or is it all across the board? Yeah, it's across the board. Um, typically, we obviously work with uh, Olympic sports, summer Olympic sports. Um, we don't do, we, we do a little bit of winter Olympic um, work, but 
typically for us um, summer summer win, summer Olympics are the are the priority, and yeah, work across a number of um, a number of sports. Um, cycling and swimming are probably two of the ones that I've had um, most experience in. And how important is recovery? And uh, if we try to focus more on from an endurance athlete perspective, how how important is it, like qualitatively and quantitatively? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I think, as I was saying, there's become it's become more and more popular. So there's more and more focus on it because what think what I think people are doing, and you notice the trend over time, is that athletes are training harder and harder the volume and the intensity is often going up and up and up and really the only way that uh, an athlete can can deal with that um, and can deal with the exposure to those loads is by making sure that when they have their time off they're doing good recovery Uh, so in terms of the actual numbers um, it's very difficult to say Uh, we do know that well from my experience most of the athletes who I've ever seen who are in a serious fatigue hole whether that be just excessive fatigue or overreaching or overtraining tends to be not so much because of the amount of training but tends to be more the lack of recovery whether that's um, not sleeping well not having enough downtime combining work um, shift work those kinds of things can be problematic so um, from our end we believe that that um, recovery is really important during the training uh, during general training during the um during the season, but we also know that around competition and depending on what type of competition that is, um, that recovery can also be really, really important in that acute um, setting where you want to minimise fatigue as much as possible. And what are the most important recovery methods that that you use or that you think that endurance athletes should use? And as well, what are some less important but potentially beneficial methods of recovery? Yeah, so my uh, perspective is that sleep is the best recovery strategy that we have available to us, Um, not just athletes, but all of us. Uh, And that obviously, you know, you spend, you should spend eight, nine, ten hours uh, asleep. And and so when you think of some of the other strategies that you use that may be effective, you know, they might be 15 minutes, half an hour type um, time frame spent on those, whereas, you know, sleep, uh, we have a, a, you know, a large amount of time that we devote to that. And there's a reason that we do that. Um, and that's because there are lots of physiological and psychological things that happen during sleep. So for me, sleep is the number one. Um, we do work with um, hydrotherapy. So things like, you know, the ice baths and the contrast baths. Uh, we believe that in a, in a competition setting or an acute setting that they can be quite beneficial. Uh, also, we do work in with compression garments, and we think that used correctly, they can be beneficial as well. Um, massage uh, in the recovery period can also be good. And then I guess the area that we're really trying to move into that um, hasn't got a lot of science behind it, but is really around mental recovery. So we've spent our life in the periphery measuring the the muscles, um, and now it's time to measure the brain and it's, and seeing how the Um, how the brain recovers um, after exercise. And then, of course, the big one, which there's a lot of research in, which is not really our area, um, but that's, of course, nutrition, one of the most fundamental um, aspects of of good recovery. Yeah, and uh, I totally agree. I have here in my notes the large chunk of of the notes and questions that I have are around sleep. But uh, that Mm -hmm. thing that you say about mental recovery, that's super interesting, and I hope that we'll have some time to to dig a little bit into, into that but uh, just one more question, a general question on recovery. What factors really affect uh, your need for recovery in terms of training, 
but factors outside of training as well, like stress and so on? Mm, yeah, great question. Uh, obviously, the um, the amount of training and the type of training as well. So um, obviously, uh, if you're swimming, uh, you'll have a different potentially recovery requirement than if you're doing a, a longer hard run um, because of the potential muscle damage that you may experience. Um, you may need different types of um, nutrition in response to that. Um, so we try to look at what's the load, what's the training load, what's the type of training. So is there muscle damage or injury risk that might be associated with that? Uh, what are the other demands on the athlete um, or, you know, are they working? Are they training? Are they in a block of where there's a lot of travel, which we know can cause um, that kind of sort of mental stress as well? So it's really looking at the the actual training involved and then all the other things around that that may cause um, the athlete to, to, need, um, to need more recovery. How do you measure training load? Do you have a preferred method for that? Yeah, well, I guess in at the AIS it really um, does vary depending on the sport. Um, so obviously, with with the cyclists, they use their they have their SRMs. Um, you know, we use obviously GPS and different things like that for different sports. We also have an online system, an athlete management system, which is modified uh, modified smarter base system, where the athletes um, not only record what they've done. Um, but they also record their responses to it, so which we think is important because you know you can go out and do a really hard session and feel great. You can go out and do a really hard session, same session, and feel not so great. Um, so we've got um, several tools that we use either objectively um, or subjectively through our athlete management system to try and get an idea of of what what the load is for the athlete and then how they're responding to that load. Yeah, and I think for many age groupers, uh, a lot of the listeners of this show will be familiar with Training Peaks that has that mm -hmm. kind of uh, objective measurement that takes into account intensity and duration of training. Yes. So that might be one one way that the listeners can apply apply can that training sure. load measurement. All right, let's move into sleep because that's uh, going to be one of the main topics of today's interview. So uh, can you talk about how sleep has an effect on performance? Yeah, sure. So... There's a couple of different ways that sleep is related um, or, or is important for an athlete. So firstly, we know from the research that if an athlete is sleep deprived for a certain amount of time, usually more than three or four days, you can see changes in performance. Um, that's from actual research studies. Uh, and usually what we see is no change in physiology. So it's not like your VO2 drops or your heart rate drops or anything like that. What happens is your perception of effort increases. So everything just seems harder, which makes sense. It's like for those of us who are not elite athletes, but who like to exercise or who are working, um, when you get tired, everything just feels a bit harder. Um, so we do know that there's direct performance um, effects of not uh, of having of being sleep deprived. There's also a little bit of evidence to say that if you um, extend sleep, so you get more sleep, then your performance also increases. So, um, but then there's just the general day to day benefits of getting good sleep. So what we know, and this is most of the research now around the mechanisms around sleep, is done in non athletes. We've collected quite a bit of data on the amount. That, of sleep that athletes are getting, but the actual um, real research around different aspects that happen when an individual is sleep deprived comes from the general population. But things like are more likely to get sick, more likely to get injured, um, changes in metabolism. So you um, tend to eat um, 
higher um, higher fat foods um, or um, um, simple carbohydrates um, to get that that quick hit. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of research now in the metabolism area, and it makes sense. You spend longer time awake. There's more opportunities for you to eat. Um, and there's also some evidence, too, around um, the hormones, leptin and ghrelin, that say whether you're hungry or full, um, that they may also be affected when, when you're sleep-deprived. Um, there's a bit of evidence out there as well on bone health. Uh, we know that bone um, actively remodels all the time, and that's also run off um, a hormonal system. So interfering with our body clock by staying awake later, um, staying awake longer and having less time asleep is going to have some ramifications. So uh, we know that from a health point of view, there's, there's lots of things that are implicated um, with poor sleep. Um, from a brain point of view, there's also a, a lot of research in that area, especially around memory, learning, concentration, reaction time, those kinds of things, all reduced um, if an individual is, is not getting good sleep. So if we, the way that we consider sleep is important, obviously, around competition because you want people to be as fresh as possible, but also just in the general training um, process and being able to adapt to the training that you're doing. And the interesting thing about working with elite athletes is it's almost like the perfect storm of things that can go wrong around sleep. So there can be a lot of travel, there can be early mornings, there can be late training sessions, there's caffeine, there can be stress. Um, if they're um, age groupers as well who might be working, trying to fit in early morning training sessions and late night training sessions, that um, can obviously be, be a problem as well. So um, it is something that uh, we are spending a lot of time on trying to understand um, how we can help our athletes sleep better. Yeah, what you say there about age groupers, that I think that totally applies to, to the majority of the listeners, including myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, you mentioned there are several things here that I want to follow up on. First, when you say that uh, that sleep's main effect on performance comes through increased perception of effort, do you have any any data on that? Have uh, anybody tried to do a research study, for example, using time to exhaustion or something on that? Yeah, that, yes, there's a uh, one or two studies that are out that have looked at sleep deprivation. One of and, and looked at that, and that's exactly what they found. Um, one of the issues we have with some of the research, though, is that they tend to use one night of full sleep deprivation, so basically not sleeping at all. Now, we know that most people don't actually do that. Most people just sleep small amounts regularly. Um, we think the same thing does happen, and I've anecdotally heard that in athletes that say when they um, get shorter amounts of sleep um, that they tend to um, feel like... Um, their perception of effort is much higher. Um, but that's over sort of the acute period. So that's over, you know, three or four days. I think if that goes on for long periods of time, then you may have the changes in the physiology and the changes in general health and well-being and injury risk and all those kinds of things. But just acutely, um, definitely an increase in perception of effort in response to sleep deprivation. Yeah, I certainly felt that my threshold seems to be around seven hours if i can get seven and a half mm -hmm. hours every night i feel good really good mm -hmm. but when it drops down to seven hours it feels like i'm really not able to perform quite at my best even though it's a it's a small different difference and seven mm -hmm. hours might be enough for some people but but uh, it's a fine line so it would be interesting to see a comparison study of something like eight and six hours a night or something over a, over a period of a few days or, or a week or so 
Yeah, and that's great. What you so what you've said there, I think that's really important for the listeners as well, is to get an idea of what feels normal for them, um, because every, the sleep requirement for each person could is is very different. Um, some people can get by with less sleep um, than others. Uh, some people need more sleep just to to get by. So I think what you said about knowing what's normal for you, and then always going back to that and trying to get that amount of sleep um, as often as possible. How large is the range there for what pe- what might be normal for people? Yeah, that's um, an excellent question. I think most athletes um, ideally sleep. Most of them are sleeping on average. We see about six and a half seven hours. Now, we believe that's not enough. Um, we've seen some athletes that get up to the 10 hours a night um, and we see some that get um, around about four hours a night. Now, the four hours a night is obviously not something that happens every night, but it can happen after a competition. Um, so um, maybe after a, a really hard race. We know in footballers they really struggle to sleep after night games. Um, so sometimes high-intensity Um, training or high intensity competition can result in you know short sleep or it might be that um, people have to get up at work or get up and travel so they have that sort of sort of four hour window of window of opportunity to sleep so certainly we don't see four hours that often but occasionally we do see it i would say the limit that we would see is sort of five and a half six hours um but then we do see some individuals rarely but uh, we do see some individuals up around the 10 hours a night But what we do see is big fluctuations. So sometimes four hours, then the next night they'll get a really good night's sleep and they'll be up around the nine or ten because they really need it and um, then it might um, fluctuate again. And that can be based on training times or based on work commitments or um, or travel as well. But are you saying that for some of these athletes, that five and a half to six hours that you mentioned might be enough, that might be sufficient for them or where is that sweet spot where it might where it's where it's enough and not just what they're actually getting yeah i think that's what they're actually getting i don't personally believe that's enough i think they're probably they may be able to sort of cope with that but whether that is best for optimal performance i i doubt yeah they could increase increase their performance by increasing the sleep yes yeah i believe that that that's the case with those um short amounts of sleep How much insight do you have into what amateur athletes get in terms of of sleep? Do they typically get enough sleep? And and what about the quality of the sleep that they get? Mm. We've got a little bit of information on um, non-elite athletes, and they also have issues, and probably what some of your listeners will experience around the need to wake up early to, um, to, to train or to train late. Um, trying to fit in a job, um, a family, a life around training um, is is not always easy. So um, generally we do see some shorter um, amounts of sleep in some of these individuals. Quite often we see, sometimes we'll see high quality of sleep. So maybe what they're doing is they, they've gotten used, they're sl- not sleeping very much, um, and but the quality of sleep is actually quite good. Um, so they're getting good sort of restorative sleep for the amount of time um, that they are asleep. But generally what happens is the, the busier we are, uh, the more things we try to fit in into our lives, the one thing that we decrease is sleep, and it's probably the one thing that we shouldn't be decreasing um, in terms of our overall performance as well as our health. 
Yeah, and also performance in uh, in at the workplace and uh, and with your family and social commitments as well, I believe, because they, you are going to notice those effects in those uh, situations as well. Mm, yeah, most definitely. Um, mood is one thing that is very strongly influenced by sleep and i think everybody knows that that you know some people get grumpy some people get irritable some people just go quiet um some people get angry and cranky uh but the mood mood is one thing that is definitely affected um by by poor sleep and that that can have an influence on your obviously your communication with your family and your loved ones with um your teammates with your colleagues um with people that you train with with your coach uh, and so that can, um, you know, that that mood aspect is also really important. Yeah, and when you when you mentioned the the quality and quantity, what what is the balance there? Can you are there a lot of athletes and uh, let's stick to age groupers and amateur athletes uh, if you have if you know about mm-hmm. that. Um, how how typical is it to maybe get enough sleep but don't get good enough sleep and or the quality in general? What what do you see there? Anything that you can tell us about that? Yeah, it is very variable. Um, but as I said, we do sometimes see the people that have slightly um, less sleep have higher quality sleep. One thing that we there's probably more um, of an influence rather than whether they're elite or non-elite is the actual amount of training that is being done. We think that the more an individual trains, the greater their sleep can be disturbed. So we've seen, which is not what you think the body would do. You would think that the harder you train, kind of the more recovery that you need. And so that is certainly true for the general population that regularly exercises. Um, and so, you, you know, you're talking about you know, three or four times a week, um, you know, half an hour to an hour at the gym, nothing, nothing too intense or crazy. They will actually sleep quite well. When you start to build up and have higher intensities, um, increased muscle damage, bigger volumes, then you can start to see um, issues around sleep. And that can be because of sore and tired muscles. Um, it, it can be also associated with any of the kind of stresses that's that's around the training and, and around performance and competition. Then when you get up to the really elite level, then obviously there can also be issues around sleep. Um, because of competition stress, um, higher training volumes. We've seen during um, some training camps that we've done where we think this is a cycling camp, and these were non-elites. They were well, very well trained, but they weren't elites. The harder they trained, the more volume they did, um, the more disturbed their sleep was, um, which is interesting because you think the body should go into, you know, deep recovery to um to, to get over that so i think that's just a good thing for people to recognize that sometimes you might be training really really hard and doing a big training block for, for, for that individual for you um an increase in volume that you may not always um sleep as well as you think because one of the things that we've learned over the years is a is fatigue doesn't equal sleepiness and again i think everyone's probably experienced that you can be really really fatigued from a hard day on the bike or a big run doesn't mean you're sleepy um so those two things can be quite different so you know, we walk around and we see athletes in a state of fatigue all the time um doesn't mean that they're um in a you know a sleepy situation where they'll be ready to sleep yeah that, that's totally true uh, it's interesting that, as you say with the volume i certainly felt uh, a correlation between 
intense training sessions in the evening and for example intense yeah. bike intervals and and my ability to fall asleep probably not so much with the volume but uh, that said i train about 15 hours a week and in triathlon mm-hmm. terms that's not too much so so maybe i'm not yeah. quite at, at <laughs> that limit yet uh what about uh electronic devices i know that's uh, mm-hmm. an area of interest of yours so can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that yeah i think that for us that's probably the biggest issue that we have in terms of working with the the athletes that we work with so um there's a there's a couple of issues around the the electronic devices so first of all is that they have blue light blue wave blue wavelength of light um and blue light affects our body clock the most so the body clock is in our brain um and it's um stimulated um by light and so that's why when it's light we feel awake and when it's dark we're more likely to feel sleepy Um, because the body clock controls the release of melatonin. So what we're actually doing when we're staring at a phone right before we go to bed is we're sending all this blue light to the body clock and says, hey, it's it's light, Um, don't release melatonin or release less melatonin, Um, therefore people become less sleepy. So there's the one, the direct influence of blue light on the body clock. The other thing is that most of the phone use that we have in um, the individual that we deal with is social media use. Um, which is obviously interactive. Um, so there, and the more followers you have, or the more famous you are, the more interaction that that you will have, and that can be obviously good or bad. Um, so we've got that. There's this time, which is say an hour, hour before bed, where you want no light and you don't want a whole lot of um, of mental stimulation. And and using a phone, in particular, using a phone with social media. Um, can be can be a real issue. So for us, we've accepted to a certain extent that are that people are going to be on their phones before they go to bed. It's pretty much what everybody does, even though we don't think they should. Um, therefore, we encourage them to use like the night shift mode on the Apple phones, which um, sends the screen makes your screen more orange, so it blocks out that a bit of that blue light, which can be can be helpful. We really try to encourage our athletes to stay off social media right before they go to bed, um, just to try and reduce some of that um, some of that light um, stimulation. And the other thing now is we do see athletes watching um, with the the influence of streaming now. So most people, a lot of people have Netflix or Stan or something like that. They can watch that on your laptop, again, with the light quite close um, to the face. Um, So we have that issue as as well. So for us, we're really trying to encourage people to um, um, use their time wisely and use their time sleeping rather than use it on social media or watching movies. Yeah, perfect advice. Let's move on from sleep and talk just a little bit about the role of nutrition in recovery. So just a brief overview. Yeah, sure. So I guess nutrition is one of those things that has really been researched for a long period of time. Um, so now, you know, the nutrition research is really getting down to some really specific information um, because there's been so much research done over the years. And yes, we we know that um, nutrition is one of the, the foundations of recovery, um, you know, re- repairing, refueling. So using, using carbohydrate or using um, protein for muscle repair, um, rehydrating. Um, the way that that is used in terms of targeting around training sessions is now getting really sophisticated because obviously in a sport like triathlon where you don't want to be carrying any extra weight, um, then you can really, you know, the whole issue about low-carb, um, low high-fat, those those kinds of um, um, 
areas that are getting really popular now um, is something that um, the AIS, the Nutrition Department, have been doing quite a bit of, you know, really quality research over the years. Um, but I guess just to say that nutrition is really important, and it's not just important for refueling, it's important for the, the immune system. And we know people are more likely to get sick when they've got um, reduced levels of carbohydrate. Um, we know that protein can be used in a lot of ways, and it's not just about muscle, it's about um, ligaments and tendons now as well. There's a lot of good research out from Keith Barr's lab in the US about using um, different um, nutritional supplements for the, you know, we just go straight to the muscle, but what about ligaments and tendons and things like that as well? So, um, yeah, I guess the, the the short summary is to say that nutrition is really important. Uh, it's harder in sports like triathlon to get that good balance um, because you obviously don't want to be having taking on too many calories. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's one of the absolute fundamentals um, for recovery, especially when you want to back up and be able to do high-quality sessions um, repeatedly. Two quick follow-up questions for post-workout nutrition. Uh, is there such a thing as uh, a window of opportunity? And if so, how long is it? Yeah, um, uh, yes, there is. Um, it, it does seem to depend a little bit on whether it's whether you're consuming carbohydrate, protein, whether you've um, whether you're um, rehydrating. You know what the what the goal is. But um, a lot of the the evidence in in a lot of in the same lot of the general recovery strategies is you know really talking about that one hour post exercise as being um, really beneficial. Yeah, and that's where you you'll want to get in quite a bit of carbs and some protein as well. Yeah. Okay, and the second thing is uh, this is something we talked a lot about nutrition on on this show with with different experts, but uh, one thing that hasn't been mentioned so far, I believe, is uh, is night protein like casein. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you have any an, anything to say about that? Is that useful and for whom? Yeah, I've been, um, as I said, I'm not a, a dietitian, so I'd be a little bit careful. I'm not certainly not a nutrition expert. Um, I have been involved in a in a couple in a study that's looking at um, protein pre sleep, and um, that definitely has been shown to be beneficial for overnight muscle protein synthesis. Um, so showing that um, that that it can be useful for um, for the build, building of muscle overnight because when you think it's a long period of time to be fasting so if you can give protein before sleep um, they've shown that that, that can be um, beneficial we did monitor sleep during those studies and found that it didn't impair sleep it didn't enhance sleep either but we, but it was it was good that there was no issues um, around sleep but there is a lot of work going into that area now around can you give um, so for, for individuals who need fast muscle repair because they've got some damage, then um, overnight um, uh, taking protein pre-sleep um, can be particularly beneficial. Mm. All right. So uh, finally, as you mentioned, uh, hydrotherapy is uh, one of your mm -hmm. your favorite areas of research. And uh, what is the current status of, of that field of research? Yeah, um, good question. So I think over the last sort of 10 years, most of the research has been around acute recovery. So um, do a session on the bike, you've got a four-hour break, and then you do another session on the bike. Let's do some form of hydrotherapy in between and see what happens to your subsequent performance. Um, and if you look at the acute research, and that's timeframes from anywhere between 30 minutes to 24, 48 hours after exercise, Generally speaking, most of the research in terms of now looking at reviews and their analyses shows that it's beneficial. 
So acutely, very small positive benefits of hypertherapy. What we're now looking at, so that's why in competition, so if I'm working with swimmers and they have an eight-day meet, we will throw lots of hydrotherapy at them. Um, the question that's become more interesting now is adaptation. So can you do too much recovery and do you really want to be doing hydrotherapy all the time in the training block? Because don't you want a bit of fatigue? Don't you want a bit of muscle damage? Don't you want these things to kind of drive um, the adaptation process? So there has been some work in the area. Unfortunately, the work has tended to be in non-trained athletes training twice a week, uh, which maybe isn't that relevant for us. So we've got a couple of studies that are going on now to look at that, this idea of um, chronic use of hydrotherapy and is it good or is it bad. So the two sides of the story are, well, okay, if you're um, a triathlete and you're training all the time, if you're doing a bit of hydrotherapy if three or four times a week, can that help you be less sore and less tired so you can do more quality sessions? The other side of the story is, well, are you dampening adaptation um, by doing too much recovery and having less inflammation and less damage and less soreness? So we really, the jury is kind of out. Um, one, although if you do look at the evidence that's out there, the, the studies that show that hydrotherapy may be bad for adaptation is typically, and again, I'll, I'll put the caveat in there that these are in not highly trained athletes, um, generally what you see is that that's around strength training, um, whereas other studies that are around cycling tend to show that repeated recovery is good. The, the weight training or resistance training studies tend to show that it may dampen adaptation. So when I'm working with my athletes, if I'm going to be a little bit conservative, I'll say, okay, let's maybe take out some recovery after weight training sessions. And if you're in a base base phase of training um, where you're just building up kilometers and you're just trying to get fit um, I'm happy if you don't do a whole lot of recovery but when you start to build in really high quality sessions when it gets close to competition if you've got races back to back or from week to week then I'd be incorporating um, as much recovery there as I could so I guess the principle now around hydrotherapy is like we periodize training like we periodize nutrition we should be thinking about periodizing recovery. And there's probably times where we may want it um, and times where we may want to take it out. Um, and the things that I think about is the athlete tired, are they sore, do they have, are they injured, do they have muscle damage, are they competing a lot? Um, maybe they can do with a little bit of extra hydrotherapy. If they're just in base training, getting out, they're doing long, hard kilometres, maybe we can drive that adaptation a little bit more by giving them um, not as much recovery as they may normally do. That's fascinating. What, what about uh, ice baths as compared to contrast baths and the, the different forms of hydrotherapy? Is there mm. any sort of general guideline on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I wish I knew the answer. Um, the, all the research that's been done on adaptation has been done in cold water. I actually think that the contrast, um, we may see completely different results. And fortunately, we have a student who's just finished a big study looking at the difference between cold and contrast on adaptation. He's just finished. So unfortunately, we have to stay tuned for the for the results of that. Um, Please send me an email but, when it's, when it's uh, <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> published. It's good to go. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm desperate to see the numbers. Um, so but maybe contrast with the incorporation of the heat in there has less of, of an effect. 
From an acute perspective, both contrast and cold water immersion seem to be both effective. Um, if I was working with athletes in the heat where that where warm weather was an issue, which it is more often than not in Australia, so we tend to use more of the ice bath type approach rather than the spa and the sauna type approach um, just because of the environmental conditions. Whereas in the Northern Hemisphere in winter, um, I'd be encouraging people to use spas and, and um, saunas um, uh, as, as a recovery method. Yeah, and probably in, even in summer, the way that this summer has been going here in Helsinki. <laughs> uh, what, what about, uh, can you do hydrotherapy even in the shower or do you need a bath for it? Yeah, great question. Um, we have done some research comparing showers and baths and showers do seem effective. Um, so what you don't get, so in the in the shower situation, is you don't get the hydrostatic pressure. So water has a lot of, of pressure. Um, when you're submerged in, in water. But with the shower, you do get the temperature changes, obviously, and you can get quite powerful temperature changes. So you can do your hot and cold, um, and you can do just pure cold. Anyone who's ever had just a pure cold shower will know it's pretty cold. Um, so you can use that effectively for the temperature changes. You just don't get that hydrostatic pressure that you get from full immersion in a bath. But um, it's something that we recommend our athletes do when they travel or if they don't have access to to, um, um, to baths or spas. Great. Uh, finally, let's circle back to, to what you mentioned at, uh, at the front of the episode about what's the term psychological recovery or mental recovery? Mm. I forget already. Yeah, we tend to use mental recovery, but... Um, yeah, it's look, it is something that's become interesting for us. And we'll hear athletes say to us, physically, I feel recovered, but I just feel mentally exhausted. And maybe that's from stress of competition or lots of travel or outside outside stress. And so for us, one, we're really trying to just, you know, the first step is really asking the right questions. So, you know, we athletes understand about, when we talk about fatigue and tiredness, when we're talking from a physical point of view, but we've got to ask the right questions when it comes to mental fatigue, then we need to understand what we can do about it. Do things like meditation, relaxation, mindfulness work? My thoughts are they probably do. They're probably really quite effective. Um, the issue is a lot of athletes either aren't interested in doing that or maybe don't think they have the time to do it. Um, so, yeah, we're really trying to take a, a, a step back, go right to the beginning and say, okay, one, what are the right questions? What are the, if athletes are experiencing this just mental fatigue or flatness, um, what do we do about it? What are some of the interventions that may sort of bring them back? And we think sleep is probably going to be one of them, but what are some of the other strategies out there that may work? Apart from caffeine, we all know caffeine helps, but sometimes it's not always the uh, the best choice. Yeah, I, I would second the use of, of mindfulness uh, meditation. I I do that myself. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it for yeah. a couple of months, and and it's uh, really great. And and also the things that you how you can apply it in before a hard training session, for example. I I can do that just to. Uh, call myself down a bit if I'm mm. uh, it, it's a big session and I want to perform well in it it usually helps or even before a race uh, it it seems to even help with performance so so if yeah. uh, if any, anybody listening thinks that it's just woo woo then uh, maybe <laughs> consider it just from that performance point of view and and learning to use it in in that sense yeah great but, and I think it probably also helps with sleep a lot too especially in stressed individuals 
Um, so I think there's a lot of uses for those kinds of strategies that yeah, we haven't really delved into enough. Yeah. All right, uh, Shona, this has been uh, really super useful. We are just going to roll into three uh, rapid fire questions before wrapping mm-hmm. this up. So mm-hmm. what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to endurance sports or to your field of expertise recovery? I actually like Twitter. I know that sounds crazy, but for me, getting that I get up to date, good information quickly from from Twitter, especially on I follow the right people around recovery, um, and that really helps, especially to sleep well. Lots of good information coming out really rapidly. Okay, so maybe your answer to this next question will be, be related to that, because the next mm-hmm. question is: Who's somebody in triathlon, endurance sports, or your field of yeah. research that you look up to and admire? Yeah, um, Asker Yerkendrup was my um, PhD supervisor. He's more in the nutrition area, but he's done a lot of work with cycling and triathlon. So, um, yeah, he's definitely one that I look to for for good advice, but he also gets the practical side. So, yeah, Asker Yerkendrup, he's got books on cycling and, and he's very active on Twitter as well. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to connect us because uh, he's somebody that I would like love to have on the show. Yeah, uh, <laughs> sure. Finally, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I think I actually, it's a very good question. I think for me, it's not putting anything off. Um, so as soon as something comes up that needs to be done, there's no pro- procrastination. I think when you're busy people and you've a lot going on, I think you just have to do it and not put things off till the end of the day or till the end of the week because it's too hard. I think just just get it done. Perfect. Where can people find out more about you? Um, so there is some information on the AIS website, which is just um, www.ais.org.au. Um, I'm also on Twitter just as uh, Shona.Halson. So we try to get get out the information of what our students are doing and, and um, some of our projects. Um, usually on Twitter before anything else, funnily enough. <laughs> all right, perfect. And we'll have all that linked up in the show notes. All right, thanks to all the listeners for uh, staying with us today. This has been uh, Shona Helson, and uh, we are signing off from that triathlon show for today. Thank you, Shona, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's been fun. All right, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Shona. The show notes for today's episode will, as usual, be found on thattriathlonshow.com. On Monday, the next episode, episode number 53, will talk to David Tilbury Davis. It will be a training talk masterclass for self-coached triathletes of all levels. I have done that interview and there are great, great takeaways for everybody from beginners to very advanced triathletes. I got a few nuggets that I hadn't even considered before talking to David that uh, he put in my head and uh, definitely immediately got the uh, got the old machinery up there going and uh, and trying to think about how how to apply those things in my training and in my athletes training. As always, I encourage you to send feedback, questions and topics, guest requests, you name it to my email on michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And that's Michael with a K. Or you can tweet me on at SciTriad. And hey, just a quick reminder that if you are interested in getting coached by me, I currently might have a few slots available for coaching 
depending on if they filled up last week when I first announced it or not, I am recording this ahead of time, so uh, I can't know. But the best way to find out is, as above, to send me an email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss if coaching by me is right for you or not. That's it for today. I look forward to being in your earbuds again on Monday. But until then, keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.